Well, hello and welcome. Welcome to a very special event today. Uh, we don't usually have events on Monday evening, although we've had a couple recently. Uh, but sometimes you just have more to do and say and talk about than you have time to do. Uh, so we are adding a very special conversation in today uh, to talk about the troubled teen industry. Uh, I am joined today, and I'll be bringing up on screen here in just a moment by Chelsea Maldonado and Robert Buckland. So let me bring them on the screen. And I'm also going to kind of briefly introduce both of them as well. Hey, Chelsea and Robert. Um, Chelsea is an Atlantic, uh, Atlanta-based uh, activist and investigative researcher. And I know your research skills are incredible uh, with a focus on youth rights and criminal justice reform. Uh, Chelsea is a survivor of kind of the troubled teen industry, as we call it, and has attended various uh, you know, programs, uh, including Tranquility Bay in 2001. Uh, Chelsea has used her lived experience to inform um, uh, and her activism while participating in a variety of anti-troubled teen industry organizations and initiatives. Uh, her research has been utilized by Salon, The Huffington Post, Business Insider, The New York Times, Reason, NBC, Warner Brothers. That's a long list there, Chelsea. <laughs> I've heard media at a variety of independent outlets and uh, is currently working on season two of Trapped in Treatment, which is a great podcast. Uh, we also have Robert Buckland joining us today. Uh, Robert is a Agape boarding school survivor who works tirelessly, and, and I mean tirelessly, uh, to shut down this facility that has not only caused him harm, but has caused harm to many others. Uh, Robert's also a healthcare worker and a campaign member uh, with We Warn Them. Uh, the We Warn Them campaign is a progressive grassroots movement uh, that's calling on local, state, and federal officials to take immediate action to end the troubled teen industry. Uh, and Robert has been really doing a tremendous amount of work uh, around um, the um, Agape Boarding School uh, to raise awareness and to try to cause change. So we've got some great people joining us today. Hello, Chelsea, and hello, Robert. Great to see you. Hello. Hi, Guy. Uh, and, and you are, you are um, you know, two of my favorite people um, and uh, two people that I have a tremendous amount of respect for that are doing really great work to change a uh, system that, you know, you've been harmed by, but is harming a lot of others. And, you know, I, I want to start off by just commending you on the efforts that you have been um, going to, to kind of bring about change to what we call the troubled teen industry. Um, you know, to be a survivor of a program like this, where you were traumatized and you were subjected to abuse um, is difficult. Uh, but to be able to turn that into something to bring justice, not for, just for what happened to you, but to protect others. You know, Robert, I know that, you know, you talk about the the boys that are still um, in Agape and, and the concern that you have for them. Uh, you know, Chelsea, as long as I've known you, you know, you've been involved in, in doing this work to really try to bring about positive change for others. Um, so first of all, thank you both for joining us and, and thank you for all that you're doing. Uh, we're just going to have a, a conversation tonight, um, but thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Really great to be here. And I really appreciate all the work that you've done with Alliance Against Inclusion and Restraint. Um, really amazing stuff happening on your end as well. So the that. love is mutual. Yes. So I want to encourage people that are watching today. Uh, if you're watching live, uh, and I see that we've got a couple of people now that have joined on the live stream. If you're watching live, 
Uh, feel free in the chat to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, if you happen to be a survivor from a program, feel free to tell us where you uh, where you were and, uh, you know, let us know um, kind of who you are. Um, so with that, why don't we go ahead and just start having a conversation? Um, I want to start out with something really kind of basic. Um, you know, I've been working, um, you know, with you, Chelsea, I think for a couple of years now. And Robert, um, it's probably been well over a year that, um, you know, you and I started connecting. And, um, you know, I'm a big supporter of what you've been doing. Um, so I've got a good background on what we mean when we say the troubled teen industry. Uh, but for those that might not be familiar, uh, Chelsea, you could probably give this in your sleep. But can you tell us what do we mean when we say the troubled teen industry? Mm -hmm. Um, so to me, the troubled teen industry really represents um, kind of a segment of congregate care that utilizes behaviorism to treat kind of a wide spectrum of issues. So these facilities tend to fall in between like your traditional group home, which would just provide like housing and living um, and say like a full psychiatric facility. Um, these would be places that maybe are geared towards treating kids that are out of control or defiant, um, kind of outside of the scope of traditional mental health. And, and what kind of kids might end up in, in one of these facilities? Any kid, um, literally any kid. Uh, so you, you know, there's not really a, a big robust, uh, admission criteria for being sent to a troubled teen facility. Um, some places list everything from simple defiance. So your child talking back or saying no, um, to, you know, your child being a bit more reclusive than usual, sleeping in late, uh, things that I guess we would consider typical adolescent behavior. Um, yeah. And, and my understanding is that, that some kids, uh, might go into one of these facilities um, really at the advice of maybe some sort of professional uh, that has advised parents that, you know, here, here's a facility that can fix your child. Um, but, but other kids might be placed there through state programs or other kinds of placements. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. Yep. Okay. Um, so, so very different yeah. paths that kids might have going to, going to facility like that. But, but the common denominator is that um, at least from what I've seen, very often these programs are really uh, marketed at, at fixing kids. Um, and, and it seems to me that many of the things that um, that are promised to be fixed are, are not, in fact, things that, that need to be fixed at all, but part of kind of the normal, you know, I mean, a lot of we call this the trouble teen industry. It's part of kind of the normal teen development. Right. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. there are certain things that are normal, but may end up getting pathologize the point where kids end up in a facility like this. Absolutely. And I think that's really important when you talk about kids that are already in um, a system like foster care or juvenile justice, where they're already experiencing trauma mm -hmm. regularly, just by default, by the very nature of being in the system. And so their reactions to trauma are something that is then pathologized. Um, we know that yeah, we know that when when kids go through a traumatic experience, they're going to behave differently than if they hadn't. Um, so that's something that we've seen really increase over the last 10 years is the use of these facilities for kids that are already in state care. Um, and that is one of the reasons why they, you know, they call these kids difficult to place um, or problematic in some way. And generally, when you dig down into that, you know, they've been through something very difficult. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And and so much, uh, you know, I mean, you, you think, you know, 
uh, a lot about the work that we've been doing. And, and, you know, of course, we don't want to see kids being restrained or secluded anywhere. And whether it's at a school or, a, you know, kind of a behavioral program or, or any other kind of facility. Um, and, and you're, you're right, dead on target that, you know, uh, the kids that are having these things happen to them very often have a trauma history to start with. But then when you're doing these things, you're layering on top additional trauma, which makes kids, uh, teens more apt to be hypervigilant, more apt to not feel safe, more apt to have stress related behaviors that then of course, get them, um, you know, get them in more punitive consequences from some of these schools and approaches. I I'm going to want to dive into your uh, your thoughts on behaviorism in a few minutes. But what I'd like to do here is kind of, if it's okay with both of you, is have you each share a little bit about your story and your experience. Uh, and then maybe after that, transition into some of the big issues and concerns, and then kind of hope for the future and what you're trying to do to affect change. So if you're both willing to do that, uh, I think I'll start off with Robert uh, to give you a chance to kind of tell us a little bit about your story. And and I recognize, um, you know, from from knowing you both and, and knowing a bit about your your stories that, you know, first of all, for anyone that might be listening, that these things are traumatic and, and certainly can be uh, triggering as well if you've had similar experiences. Uh, so, you know, in asking you to share a little bit about your story, uh, you know, I'm recognizing that this can be difficult for you. Uh, as well as people that might be hearing this. And at any point, if there's something you just want to move on, we can certainly do that as well. But I do want to be mindful that, you know, I realize that you're both extremely, um, extremely courageous to, to be able to take this on and, um, you know, just know that you're in a safe space. And if there's something you don't want to talk about, we'll just keep moving. But Robert, would you mind sharing with us a little bit about kind of how you came to be in the troubled teen industry and a, a little bit about your experience there and, 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 you know, why this is so important to you? Yeah, sure. Sure. Guy, I appreciate it. Um, and thanks Chelsea for joining as well. Uh, appreciate it. Um, so I was sent to agape boarding school when I was 13 years old. Um, and for doing the same exact behaviors that you and uh, Chelsea were speaking about in the beginning here, uh, in terms of, you no, know, I never broke the law as a child. I never did anything out uh, super outlandish. I think, uh, like in the list of reasons my mom had sent me to Agape, it's um, Robert asked too many questions. His backpack is messy. Um, he had candy wrappers or soda cans underneath his bed. Um, you know, typical behavior. Any, if that's the worst your child's going to uh, be doing, um, this is actually not that bad. Um, you know, restraints at Agape boarding school, I'll speak to that specifically. Um, they weren't restraints. I think um, this weekend guy, um, I think I sent you over a copy of one of the restraints um, that had happened to me. Um, I think that was for an hour and a half. And it shows that I was restrained for just saying yes, dear, to one of the staff members. So I wasn't a threat to myself. I wasn't a threat to other staff members. And I got restrained for almost uh, two hours. Um, after the first 45 minutes in the restraint report, it shows that I was uh, cooperative and calm for um, after 45 minutes, and yet they continued to restrain me for another 30 minutes. Um, you know, it's it's right there in their own report, and you know that 
hour and a half, two hours is not even the longest that I saw Agape. I think it was for like nine or ten hours. And I'm sure they had restraints at Tranquility Bay. Um, it's something that pretty much every school in the country, I would say, uses in some type of form. Um, whether it's restraint, seclusion, um, you know, we, we know, uh, we use it at the hospital in our, in our psych ward, uh, just in case there's a patient that like really absolutely needs to go there. And they don't, they don't go there for saying like, if a patient called me yesterday or we're not going to restrain them and put him in the seclusion okay. room. Yeah. That's only we- for people that are. In, in extreme circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and interestingly enough, I mean, there's actually a lot of work in acute psychiatric facilities to eliminate restraint and seclusion. And there are facilities that have success, successfully eliminated restraint and seclusion as well that are acute, you know, even inpatient psychiatric wards. Um, so, you know, th- that kind of work is happening in those places as well, where they've realized that there are better things that they can do. But, you know, in, in your case, you know, you were, you were, you were there at Agape um, because your your parents were concerned about behaviors that, you know, it sounds like were were fairly minor behaviors. Had you had any prior trauma, um, you know, prior prior to ending up at Agape? Uh, Agape, did you have any prior trauma or uh, you know life experiences that were difficult for you? Um, I didn't have any trauma until I left Agape. Gotcha. Um, I never had any like bad experience in my life before being sent there. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, and and what other kinds of things did you see happen? I mean, how how did they try? So what was the behavior they were after at Agape? And how did they try to get that from you? Can you ask that again? I'm sorry. Well, I'm trying to figure out kind of like, what were the expectations? What were the behavioral expectations they had of you at Agape? And then what did they do to try to get the behavior that they were expecting? Um, I'll answer the second question first and then the first question after, (laughs) um, the behavior they were after, I don't think there was, I think it was more of, you know, that they beat us into fear, you know, and then that's how we would behave and just like fear of acting out, fear of knowing what's going to happen, but not knowing what's going to happen. Um. And the first, there wasn't really any thing in particular that you could do wrong. Um, it was literally anything that you did wrong. You know, you spoke if you spoke if you spoke too loudly. Um, you had a smile on your face, and the staff member wasn't having a good day, or uh, came in in a bad mood. Uh, you know, I'd see kids at we woke up at six in the morning, like they'd throw kids out of their bed by six oh one. You know, so it's, it starts off r- r- right early in the day there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the um, really the, the essence of it then was about compliance. You know, they, they expected you uh, unconditionally to kind of comply with what they were telling you to do. Uh, it wasn't a matter of that you were doing things wrong. It's just that you were expected to meet, you know, whatever they told you to do. I mean, is that kind of the experience you had? Yeah, that sounds exactly, you know, be, uh, beat us into submission. Mm-hmm. You had shared a story at one point, um, and it, it was, um, well, you shared it. Uh, I don't know where the origin was, but it was about a young man running around a baseball diamond um, and wearing uh, like a robe or something like that. 
can you tell me more about you know that kind of thing or the other kinds of things that they might do to people that didn't meet their expectations? So yeah, the, the pastor of the school and the current board of director, uh, Frank Burden, uh, you can see in the video, he's dragging a kid around, um, very young kid uh, in a bathrobe. And then at the end of the video, starts kicking him. And if you notice in the reaction of everyone, all the students in the video, no one really reacts because that was typical. You know, that that, that was uh, pretty mild compared to what would and what did happen. Um, it's, you know, stuff like that, seeing the staff every single day uh, do something to either yourself or one of your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I watched a kid. I watched, like, kids fight each other and uh, watch another kid stab another student in the neck with a fork um, stuff that no children should have to watch uh, you know that, that traumatized me in a way um, you know watching uh, my friend in the dorm try to hang himself from the top bunk oh, gosh. Uh, with, with a pair of sheets uh, you know I, I tried committing suicide so many of my friends did and just failure upon failure to like get my uh make my family aware make the state aware of what's going on um, well what, what would happen if you try to make your family aware i mean would you have opportunities to talk to your family or send back information or how, how did that work so everything was censored um it, i think I, I have a copy of a couple of my letters that are in my file that my family never got and talk about suicide physical abuse, sexual abuse, and, you know, at the top of the letter, staff wrote, like, you need to read this letter, this letter can't go out, or there's a lot of changes that need to be made, um, so there was no telling anybody anything, you know, it, it was impossible. Now, how old were you when you first went there? 13. And how long were you there? Um, until about six months after I was 18. Wow. Um, and... They they never reached a time that they felt that um, you know that that if they were just, just kind of playing devil's advocate here, if they were there to help you, uh, they never felt that you reached a time that you would be able to go back to your parents' home. And uh, I mean, wh- why if they were a successful program? And and I understand they weren't, but I mean, wouldn't that be the goal is to help a kid and then get them back to where they can be reintegrated with their family? So the fact that you're there for that period of time. Um, that had to be really, really difficult. Yeah, it, it was difficult. You know, I, I think I went home twice in five, five and a half years um, mm. for like four or five days at a time. Right. And I, I begged my family, like, hey, please do not send me back. I, I do not want to go back. And, you know, they would tell me, oh, the school says they don't think you're ready. Um, you know, so it's just, you know, especially after five years, um, they, you know, they were promoting some type of, you know, we can fix your son in one year. You know, it took me five years for them. You know, I, w- I ended up leaving worse than w- what I ended up coming in there. What happened in terms of, you know, your education? Because it was a school, right? I mean, what were they doing in terms of education? Were they providing you with any services? I mean, did you get any professional i mean did you get any counseling or any other services while you were there what what were things like on an educational front while you were there 
So we did the accelerated Christian education um, packets, and it was a hundred and about hundred and forty of us all in one big room, um, separated by dividers, and with about four people who were not qualified to be teachers. Um, pretty much like taught ourselves to learn. It's a self-learning packet. Um, no reason for a teacher. And, you know, the school cost, you got to remember, 48000 a year. So the education system there is completely corrupt. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you said that you were able to leave after you were, um, you said about six months after you were 18. Was that that you were able to leave there on your own, just that, you know, as an 18-year-old that you were able to leave? Or uh, did they, you know, say that you were, you know, you were done? Yeah, so they said it was done, but um, my family had just bought me a condo in West Palm Beach, Florida. Um, and that was kind of also like motivation for me to stay and graduate. Like, what was it going to do after being there for five years, not knowing anything about life? And you know, so I was kind of waiting to graduate and waiting for my parents, uh, the place that they bought me to be ready. Um, let, let's shift over for a second to, to Chelsea and hear a little bit about uh, her experience. But, you know, Robert, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. And I mean, I'm I'm horrified at, at what was done to you over those years. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, honestly, it, it's just amazing. Um, you know, the, the, the person that you are now in the fight that you have been making to, um, you know, correct this wrong and make sure that what happened to you doesn't happen to others. You know, your, your work in, um, you know, the medical um, setting, um, you know, you, you have done some really amazing things and continue to do amazing things. Um, but I'm so sorry that, you know, you went through what you went through. Um, I mean, I, I've heard, you know, a number of stories from you and, you know, whether it's restraint, whether it's, you know, uh, other abusive things that were being done, uh, those things should never be done to anyone. Um, but, you know, I, I do so much appreciate. Um, it's hard. I mean, you know, it's hard to, I'm sure, share the difficult things that happened to you. Um, but I know you recognize how important it is to bring about change. So you know, thank you for for sharing, the, the, you know, this part of your story. And we'll come back to you in a minute. Um, thank you. Yeah. Chelsea, um, you know, and again, I know you've shared some of your, your story with me before, but if you would just give people an idea of kind of like, you know, how did you end up in the troubled teen industry? Um, you know, what was it like there? You know, because one of the things that, uh, you know, you and I have talked about before, as I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, parents are sometimes led to believe that, you know, some of these programs are great programs and they're going to help their children who just need a little extra help. And they may approach a program like this feeling they're doing something good, uh, not realizing the potential for harm or the potential damage. Um, and, and that's, you know, I'm sure a really difficult place, um, you know, for a parent who who thinks that they're doing the right thing. Of course, other kids end up there under no choice of, of anyone other than whatever the state might decide to do. Um, but, you know, if you can share a little bit about your experience, how you ended up there and, and kind of what it was like. I mean, what was a day, um, you know, like where you were? Uh, and, and, and it seems to me that the facility you were at was um, out of the United States, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the facility I went to was located in Treasure Beach, Jamaica. Um, so a very remote part of Jamaica. 
Um, I was sent there to Tranquility Bay when I was 17. Um, that was in 2001, not to age myself too much here. Um, I had actually uh, been through a sexual assault um, and had reported it to the police. Um, it was a close friend. And um, during the the rape kit examination, um, they found that there were drugs in my system, which they told my parents about. Um, and I was already in counseling. Uh, so we went to my counselor who was a licensed therapist and over, I guess it was about a week after from like the assault to when I went to Jamaica, um, I wasn't processing it correctly. And so she recommended that my parents send me somewhere uh, where I could get the help that I needed, uh, both to process the trauma of the assault and to deal with the fact that I was using drugs. Um, and so she she recommended the program to my parents. Um, I think it's an important element to note that it was a licensed therapist. There's kind of an assumption that you wouldn't get sent to a place like this, you know, through a therapist or through a mental health professional, but that wasn't my experience. Um, so yeah, so I went to Jamaica. Um, my dad actually took me, we didn't use an escort uh, company. So my dad actually flew me there himself. Uh, Would you clarify real quickly what you mean by an uh -huh. escort? Because I'm sure- Oh yeah, I should, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should clarify that. Um, so a lot of these facilities will recommend that you use either what they call an escort service or a transport company. Um, and this is so that your child doesn't run away. Um, they recommend it for two reasons. One is for the surprise element. Um, and the second is to reduce like the amount of stress on the parent who's sending their child. And so what they will recommend is that the parent hire, um, it's usually two folks who will show up at your house generally in the middle of the night when you know that your child is home and asleep and in bed. Um, and that is to catch the child off guard. So they don't have a plan. They don't have anything packed. They don't expect it. Um, the folks come, they come into your house. They will often tell the parents to either like wait somewhere in the house, you know, kind of out of eye shot or even have the parents leave completely. And then they will take the kid forcibly to the program. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, I think that a couple of states have passed some laws recently, Oregon and Utah, I believe, um, some very minimal regulations on this, but at least at the time, there were no restrictions on using zip ties, handcuffs, blindfolds, you know, some companies advertised chemical restraints, um, you know, so it's kind of a free for all. We'll get your kid to where they're going. We, 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 will, we will kidnap and, and traumatize your child in a memory they will never forget. I mean, it, it's yes. it's horrific. Uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've heard these kind of stories before. Um, absolutely horrific to even think that um, that kind of approach would be used. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to interject. Yeah. I just wanted to, to clarify for people yes. what, what a transport was. Uh, and unfortunately, that didn't happen to you. But I'm sure that didn't really make the experience any less dramatic. No, um you know, I, I was turning 18 um, in about four months from when I got sent away. So in my mind, at least I knew I had a finite period of time um, that I would be sent away. I guess um, that made it slightly easier for me. Um, but yeah, my dad took me. I was dropped off. He did a quick tour of the facility. And that was that. Um, I wouldn't actually speak to my parents again via phone um, until I got out of the program um, when I turned 18. 
um, like Robert, in our facility, everything was censored. So we weren't allowed phone calls until you had reached, I think, level three. Um, and what what is level three? For people that may not be familiar mm -hmm. with the level system, what is level okay. three? And, and what's yes. a level system? Yeah. So when you first get into the program, you are at the very bottom. You're a lower level. Um, you're assigned a buddy. Um, and you have very, very limited privileges. So each level grants you a few additional privileges. So at the beginning, no privileges at all. You have to raise your hand to move, to speak, to sit, to stand, um, everything. And you have a buddy that's with you at all times who's there to kind of help you navigate the rules because they're designed, like it says right in the manual, that there's enough rules that so you'll break them every day, right? So people are constantly losing and gaining points. Um, so you lose points when you break a rule, you gain points either for reporting someone else breaking a rule or being caught, I guess, uh -huh. being super good. Um, and, and then, yeah, each level you gain some additional privileges. Um, I didn't make it beyond level two before I got out. So I never had phone call privileges and I was never allowed to speak to anybody who was below a level three. Um except for during group therapy. So that was kind of how they restricted communication between like newer folks in the program, level ones and level twos could not talk to each other at all. So you could only talk to people who'd been there for a while. Um, gotcha. Typically and, and, it was like four to six months to get to level three. Gotcha. And what kind of things did you lose points for? Um, so, I mean, literally anything. So okay. you okay. had- Yeah, back to what yeah. Robert said, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. you, you look at somebody wrong. You you, yep. you use the wrong tone of voice. Uh, okay, so so mm -hmm. in anything. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So and then so there were things that were like normal behaviors that were kind of like exaggerated. So like if you were caught looking out the window, that was considered a run plan. So that was a category five consequence, the most severe you could get. Uh, mm -hmm. Biting your nails was self-inflicted harm. Same thing as if I had tried to hang myself. Exact same consequence. Wow. Um, wow looking at a member of the opposite sex, whether by accident or not, that was also category five romantic encouragement. So all of us girls, actually, if boys were coming, we were all in lines. We had to quickly turn around um, so that we weren't facing the boys so that there was no chance that we would accidentally look at them for romantic encouragement. Hmm. Um, so things like that, that's kind of how the rule structure was set up. Right. So, so, so again, it, it was really back to compliance for compliance sake. It, it's, yes. we, we, we will, we will break you and make you listen to anything we want you to do by uh -huh. treating you inhumanely. Um, so what kind of things, I mean, what kind of things happened, you know, aside from the loss of points, uh, if you weren't meeting the expectations or broke the rules or what kinds of things that you either experience or see happen to, to others that were there? Mm -hmm. um, so they had a room that was called observation placement. Um, I was lucky I did not personally go to observation placement, but I did see observation placement often. Um, that was the most severe consequence that you could get. So that would always begin with a restraint, um, you know, occurring, and then they would transport the kid to the observation placement room. There they had to lay on the floor with their chins on the ground and their arms behind their back like this, just on a towel on the ground all day. They had three breaks per day to do like an obscene amount of uh -huh. ju jumping jacks, I guess, because someone had at one point complained about the amount of time that they were laying there. So this was their, their compromise, right? Um, and other than that, that's what they did. Um, 
someone spent over a year in observation placement. I think that was the record was like 18 months, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they were, that was the most severe place. Um, and then the place where I often went was study hall, which seems semi innocuous. Um, you would go and you would have to write these essays. And so there would be, it would either be 5,000 or 10,000 words and you had a certain number of hours within which to write it. And you'd go to this little room and they would give you a stack of books because there weren't desks and then some papers and you'd write by hand kind of hunched over um, and then turn it in and they would count the words. And if you were even like one word short, you had to start over. And so sometimes you'd spend several days trying to get this meaningless essay done. And then at the end of it, it just went either directly into the trash or into your file. Nobody ever read it or there was no real point it was just a thing so what what kind of i mean you know you you were there at the uh, recommendation of a psychologist uh, or therapist what, what did you psychologist, say psychologist yeah oh, okay. Uh -huh. okay. And, and what kind of services were they providing to you um in terms of from a psychological standpoint I mean, what, what were they doing to try to you know help you uh, other than help trying me, to yes. yeah was it, was um, there so Tranquility Bay, yeah, so they, we did have a, a psychiatrist who contracted with us, um, Dr. Shapui. Um, so he came, I believe, once a month. So I saw him a total of three times individually, I believe, while I was there. Right. Um, and then he also ran um, a couple of groups, which also met once a month. Um, and they were confrontation style groups for various issues. There was an adoption group. And then the group that I was in, which was called Rape and Molest, um, where we got to all meet in the basement and talk about how we made choices that encouraged hmm. this. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. So Tranquility Bay used a lot of uh, large group awareness training and um, EST style seminars, which are it's very, it's, it's confrontation therapy. I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with that, but the idea is that you get everyone in a room and you talk about these really deeply personal, you know, scenarios until you're extremely emotional. Um, and you know, it's for sometimes like 12 hours a day. And, and that was kind of how we, we processed things. Um, but they followed a philosophy of there being there's no right or wrong there's only working or non-working and so everything that happened to you in your life right you could look at it through this lens of you made choices that got you there and based on your results you had exactly what you intended right and mm -hmm. so your your choices were either working or non-working so in my case you know there were a lot of choices that i made that led up to the sexual assault that i had control over and so that was where I was supposed to be focusing my energy and my attention because there's no point in focusing on being a victim or on victimhood or trauma itself, right? That's in the past. We can only focus on what we can control. And those are the choices that led us to that place. Wow. 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 Um, I mean, that, that had to be incredibly difficult. And I mean, you know, th this is, all about kind of breaking somebody's resolve. I mean, um, yeah. So you were there for how long? 
Um, thankfully, I was only there until I turned 18. So it was like three and a half months, just shy okay. of four months. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, yet that experience has clearly had a major role in your impact on your life, right? Oh, every day I think about that. Yeah. 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 It's, so, it's... so where is um, uh, um, Montego Bay? Well, I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember the name of it again. Treasure Where's, Beach. Yeah. Treasure Beach. Where's uh -huh. Treasure Beach today? Are, are they still in operation? They are not. So the actual facility that I went to closed in, I believe, 2011. Um, and why did they close? Uh, at, they will claim monetary issues, but Jamaica had actually launched an investigation into the facility. So it looked like they were about to shut them down for human rights violations, and then they closed voluntarily instead. And and what's... Um, so we often find these programs are in certain states or mm -hmm. sometimes like this case out of the country. Why would a facility like that choose to be out of the country? I know in my case, because of my age, um, you know, if I had chosen to sign myself out of basically any facility in the States, right. I would have been allowed to sign myself out. Um, gotcha. You know, while I, I did have drugs in my system, I wasn't a prolific drug user, you know, where they were going to admit me into inpatient rehab, most likely. Um, so, you know, that was the reason that my parents were sold on it was that they would accept me if they could get me there. They would accept me no matter my age. And they would try to convince me to stay past 18 as well. Right. But, but uh, there's also no uh, I mean, you're not protected by the same laws that would protect you right. in the United States. And, and while the laws here in the United States are not necessarily great. They are better in some areas than others, which is why we we see certain facilities like this happening in some states more than others, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but but Absolutely. when you're talking about out of the country, well, all bets are off. They can do whatever they want. I mean, can't they? Mm -hmm. Oh, they absolutely can. Yeah. Um, you know, Jamaica was allowed to operate for quite a while, actually. I think they were open from 1998 till 2011, which is one of the longest runs for an international program. Um, a lot of them are closed sooner. Yeah. 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 Well, well, certainly, certainly a good outcome that they're closed. But, uh, you know, I mean, the time that they were open, uh, the number of people that went through those doors. And of course, you know, as as one person going through the experience that Robert went through, going through the experience that you went through, um, this is an experience that you went through and you have nothing else to really even compare it to. Right. I mean, this is just somebody institution institutionalizing and normalizing abuse and you feeling like, Oh, I've been told I'm bad. I'm, I'm, uh, it's my choices. I, I, you know, it's my fault. Um, wow. I mean, what a, a heavy load to be have ha placed on you. Um, and, you know, I mean, I can't help but think, I mean, you know, we, we talk about brain development and how our brains aren't fully developed to where, what, in our mid 20s or so. Um, you know, to, to put kids through this kind of thing, it's awful. I mean, it's literally, I mean, absolutely awful what, what both of you went through. Um, what's amazing to me is that both of you have kind of reached a point in your journey. Um, and, and I know that you've been doing it for you know diff different lengths of time, but where you want to, you want to change this. I mean, the facility that you were at Chelsea, of course, is closed down. Robert, we're going to talk about Agape here in a second, which is not closed down, but based on all the things that were done to you and others, should be closed down, right? So um, let's talk about that. Robert, what what led you, and I'll come back to you in a few minutes, Chelsea. Robert, what led you from going through this program, being, I mean, I'm just going to say it for what it is, going through this abuse, and then coming out and saying, 
you know what? I got to do something about this. This is not okay. How'd you make that transition from somebody that, you know, went through this to somebody that said, I got to do something about it. What happened? So I, um, it wasn't until last year that I even started working on, um, bringing awareness to what's going on at Agape. I, um, <clears throat> I forgot, I forgot about everything, honestly. Um, you know, it's not something that you want to remember. It's not something that like, oh, this and this happened to me. Like, I'm so grateful. Um, somebody had sent me an article early last year and it was that Agape was under investigation. Um, then all like all of a sudden all these um memories started like flooding back into my head um as i was reading like article after article like oh i remember when that happened to me or this or and you know there's been hundreds of different survivors from agape that have come forth um from four different decades now you have uh, 19 current lawsuits you have videos of abuse you have um staff members who are indicted for crimes already um, and the school remains open. So I think, I mean, I really don't even know what to say at this point, the fact mm -hmm. that it's still open. Mm -hmm. and I know the reason that I fight so hard for, to bring as much awareness as possible to this is because I was there for five years, mm -hmm. um, almost six years. And, you know, trying I don't want any child to go through what I went through there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd, ra I'd rather have them see them closed down so that way they don't have any opportunities there to hurt any, more, any other children. So you had kind of moved on with your life and then suddenly this kind of, you know, uh, this came back through that memory and, and then you, you kind of made the resolve that you had to do something about it. Um, you know, you said it was about a year ago and, you know, um, Chelsea, I'm sure that you, you can probably uh, speak to this as well. But when when Robert uh, decided to take some action, wow. I mean, Robert, you began taking a lot of action really uh, quickly and, and really doing a lot. And, and, you know, I hear you saying, well, you know, it's been, been a year now. But, wow, you put a tremendous amount of pressure, uh, you know, on the school, obviously. But but th there's there's reasons. I mean that things have not yet changed. I mean, what, what, what have you run into? So as you've tried to raise awareness and, you know, you tell somebody these stories and you're like, Oh my gosh, how's that place still in operation? Why has something not happened sooner? I mean, what's, what's the problem if this kind of facility exists and is doing these kinds of things uh, and there's multiple lawsuits, um, what is it? What, why is it moving slower or um, you know, what are, what are your thoughts? So one of the biggest obstacles that we, we, we've run into in Missouri is the fact that there was no oversight for decades. And although although that they had passed the law last year, uh, I think it's HB 757 um, or 760 or something like that. Um, the law doesn't do much. And what I mean by that is there's no prior rulings on that law being used. Um, so there's not many instances where they can apply it because they don't, there's a lot of questions still surrounding what's enforceable and what's not. 
and we we introduced the bill in the Missouri legislature um, this year, actually, uh, on sex abuse victims, uh, on extending statute of limitations from th- three years until 20 years. Um, but it, it just got caught up in a whole bunch of gerrymandering. Uh, Dem- uh, Republicans wanted to uh, put it in a bill that Democrats didn't support. So it just became a huge political issue. Mm-hmm. And um, just before you move on, you mentioned uh, kind of sexual abuse, and that wasn't something we had talked about previously. Um, and I just want to ask you both. I mean, are, are sexual abuse, sexual misconduct things that you saw in, in the facilities that you were each in? I I suspect that what I saw was, was sexual abuse. Um, I mean, definitely, I think that the therapy that we received was inappropriate for anyone who went through sexual trauma. But on top of that, I can say with certainty that I saw the operator of the facility taking certain girls back to his house mm-hmm. for private sessions. Um, mm-hmm. And that was one of those things like, I mean, I, I saw that part of it. I didn't right, see what right. happened in the house. So right, right. it's an allegation. But right. yeah. And, and Robert, in terms of a copy, there are allegations of sexual um, abuse. Aren't there at Agape? Is that correct? Yeah, so a couple things there real quick. Um, I was sexually abused myself by another student. I watched plenty of students in five years get abused by other older students. And, you know, just staff aren't doing anything um, at all. I reported it. Nothing happened. In the early 2000s, a staff member got charged and convicted of molesting a student. Um, Last year, you had the school's doctor indicted for... um, fondling and molesting students at agape um so yeah it's no good well, and you mentioned from other students um am i right in my um um assumption here and i believe that i've heard this kind of explained to me before but in a lot of these places they build this kind of hierarchy where where the the kids that have been there longer or met the level systems or whatever it may be suddenly then become abusers themselves and are, are part of sometimes a discipline. Chelsea, I see you nodding your head. So does that kind of thing happen in those systems, those point and level systems where suddenly somebody reaches a higher level and then they're, um, you know, somehow, um, you know, providing discipline or oversight to other kids? It's part of the program, typically, in order to progress to those higher levels or to keep those higher levels, you have to act as what they generally call like a junior staff member. And so, yeah, you're issuing consequences, you're demoting people from their levels, you're you're telling on your friends. You know, it's a very they call it it's ironically called positive peer culture, Um, but it is (laughs) it is not very positive for peer building. Right, right. Yeah. Well, isn't that the irony? You know, we, we see, you know, seclusion rooms called the calm down room or we see mm-hmm. you know, these kind of practices. You know, what you call something doesn't define what it is. I mean, the practice, if it's an abysmal practice, it shouldn't be done. It shouldn't be done. Uh, given it a cute name doesn't change anything. Uh, Robert, did you experience that as well with older older staff members or uh, staff members, uh, you know, getting involved in kind of the discipline as well at Agape? Students, older students, right. like older the students. higher levels. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Sorry about that. Yeah, um, definitely older students. Um, you know, when I had turned 18, they, um, I, I remember they actually asked me to help restrain a kid, and I didn't know what to do. So they actually kicked me out of uh, 
the restraint and brought in a staff member. Um, but, you know, it's not something I wanted to have anything to do with. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, definitely kind of a hierarchy system there. I think either the longer you were there or, you know, the closer you were to so-and-so staff member, they would have their own little circles of people who they wouldn't. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, I want to steer back to Chelsea for a minute and I'll come back to you, Robert, but um, you know, Chelsea kind of getting back to what I initially had asked Robert about kind of what took you from, I went through this, I experienced that it was traumatic to this isn't okay. And I've got to do something about it. How did you kind of go down that road of, of, you know, where you are now and advocating? I mean, I know you've been heavily involved in a number of different organizations. You're now uh, involved with uh, Unsilence, correct? I mean, you're involved with that group and I know you've been involved with others as well. How did you, how did you make that um, journey? Um, so actually probably about 10 years after getting out of the program, maybe give or take a couple years there, you know, I had already, So I'd done some processing on my own immediately when I got out. I knew I did not like the program and I was not happy with my parents for sending me. Right. But we worked through that, I thought, kind of on the front end. Um, But about 10 years later, when I was moving, I actually found a box that had all of my journals, letters, everything from when I was in the program. And I just started reading it. And in reading my journals, I could see like myself change and just the lingo that I used, the way that I talked, the, you know, everything about myself shifted. Right. And it was so creepy to read. And so I bought a domain and I put my diaries online. (laughs) I thought, we'll just do this and we'll see if anybody else, you know, has these experiences. Right. And that turned into a lot of people who, you know, I called it WASP diaries at the time. And so people who went to WASP programs would reach out and, you know, share pieces of their stories and we'd put it up. And then I started blogging and writing about different programs and realized, I guess when I realized it wasn't just me and it wasn't just one place, it was this bigger thing than this one school, right? Because for a while I had thought, oh, I went to this crazy weird place in Jamaica, but that was something that just happened to me. But it's not just one crazy place in Jamaica. It's it's hundreds or thousands of crazy places all over this country and other countries. And we're sending, I mean, an obscene amount of kids to them and no one seems to be looking into what's happening to them. So I guess that realization is what really woke okay. me up. Um, and you mentioned WASP earlier, and just for people that might not know, can you clarify what that is? Yep. Um, that stands for the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs. And so back in the 90s and, and 2000s, they were the biggest troubled teen industry provider. So they had programs all over the U.S. and abroad. Um, they had the program I went to in Jamaica, two in Mexico, Costa Rica, the Czech Republic, Samoa, Um I mean, all over. And gotcha. their programs are regularly shut down for abuse and neglect. And they kind of pioneered the model of just rename and rebrand and put a different owner in place that's related to the first one. And you're a new mm-hmm. program now. Mm-hmm. And, and since you began advocating, I mean, you know, initially, I, you know, I, I love that you just kind of made the decision, like, I'm, I'm going to share this, put it out in the world. And, 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 you know, other people began probably to find what you were doing and share that they had experienced it. Uh, and, and I know from even the, the work that we do, it's kind of, 
you know, the reason I started the Alliance um, was that I wanted people to know that they weren't alone. Um, I wanted people to know that, you know, that we can do something to make a difference. Uh, but it, it really can be isolating, I'm sure, uh, when you don't know anybody else that's been through this. But I mean, <laughs> these are large communities now, right? These survivor communities are, are large communities and lots of people coming together. Um, you know, where where's that work been going for you? I mean, since you first uh, launched that website, um, you know, what have you been doing? And, you know, what have you learned through the process? Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a wild ride. Uh, so I think in the beginning, it was kind of the wild west of survivors just meeting each other, you know, we were discovering the internet, I guess, and how to use it for activism. Um, I know in my program, we were forbidden from knowing each other's last names or having personal addresses. So we all had like various ways of like hiding this information in our diaries so we could get back in touch when we got home. And then pretty much boom, social media existed not too long after that. And we were like, oh, hey, these last names come in handy. <laughs> and, you know, we were able to connect with people that you thought you're never going to see again. Um, and that kind of changed everything. So first realizing, OK, I'm not alone. Then it's, oh, my God, there's tens of thousands of us. And then, you know, back in 2020, I think things really took a shift when Paris released um, her documentary, This is Paris. Um, and when she came forward as a survivor of Provo Canyon School, I mean, I've never seen media attention on this issue like we've seen since then. Um, suddenly, it's not just media, it's lawmakers. It's, you know, everybody is paying attention. We have yet to see, I guess, what will come of it and if it's going to hopefully turn into, you know, some federal legislation, which is my ultimate goal. Um, but yeah, I think now it's become something that you know, is, is starting to be learned about in, in the average household. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I have a friend who rents our tiny house. I have a tiny house in my yard and she hears about it, you know, on like social media. And she's so excited to tell me, she's like, I heard about a school like yours. I'm like, Oh, great. But I'm realizing that it's, you know, it's actually like reaching people. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. exciting. Um, sure. Yeah, and you have all these different organizations that are forming, and each of them has something unique to offer. And I think there's, you know, there's room in this space for everybody to participate and make change. Absolutely. Uh, so, Robert, um, let's talk a little bit more about what you've been doing. So, you know, about a year ago, you began this advocacy work around Agape, um, kind of sharing what happened to you. But, you know, when I, when I kind of said earlier, I mean, you've done a tremendous amount in this period of time. What are the things that you have been doing so far? Uh, you know, what are you involved in in terms of trying to raise the um, I mean, because, you know, of course, the the facility that, that Chelsea mentioned has been closed down. Uh, there's lots of other facilities out there. And as Chelsea mentioned, they they sometimes kind of it's like a real game. They move around. But Agape is still there. Uh, and, and of course, there have been other high profile, um, you know, um, facilities that have uh, been closed down. Um, so what have you been doing to try to really raise, raise awareness around agape. Yeah. So there's been a lot of different methods that we've used, obviously, you know, trying to get a new story out every week about what's been going on there, uh, constantly reaching out to re new reporters or j journalists, um, seeing if they'll pick up on the issue. Um, working with different organizations like Chelsea's, um, non-silenced, um, you know, it's, <coughs> 
the more people that partner together, the better. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I working with uh, Chelsea and Meg uh, and Caroline ha- ha- has been great. Uh, you know, this morning Meg sent out a nice email for me um, to see if those two Congress uh, people who launched an investigation into uh-huh. Bain and the other one would uh, include Agape into their investigation. Um, no, like Chelsea said, I there's tens of thousands of us, and you know nobody's alone. Everyone has a different, unique experience, uh, and most of us like are each other's families as well. You know, like mm-hmm. a lot of um, families don't support their children after. Um, sending them to such a school. I think it's also not wanting for them not wanting to um, take the blame or accept the blame of, you know, this and this happened to my child um, because of the decision um, that I made. Um, I think that's a huge thing to know as well. I've, you know, a lot, anyone can reach out to me. Anyone can reach out to Chelsea, I'm sure. Um, you know, whether you're a parent, perspective, um, prospective parent or a former student of one of these places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it seems like, and, and Chelsea can help me in my memory because it doesn't always, always, always work, but I, I know in the past that I've tried to uh, connect parents uh, sometimes as well uh, to, to folks like Chelsea, uh, another, another, um, you know, other folks that I've connected people with that may have had experience about a, about a particular facility. Um, and, and that's an important perspective. I mean, you know, as a parent, you know, I would certainly want to know, um, Speaking of parents, and, and this is a question for both of you, and I'll, I'll let you just kind of um, take it one at a time, but um, how how did this affect the relationship that you had with your parents, uh, you know, kind of both while this was happening and, and subsequently? And again, if there's anything you're not f- comfortable talking about, no worries. But uh, I just wanted to ask, you know, um, both of you kind of, what's yeah. the impact of this been? I. I'll, I'll go real quick, Chelsea. It'll be quick. So, my ever since I started speaking out against the Gape um, and my experience, what happened to me, my family told me, "Hey, can you um, can you please stop talking about like Gape because you're ruining our family name. You're making us look bad." Um, and really, ever since then, I haven't spoken to my family. Um, you know, I, I was seeing a therapist at the time, and she's like, "Just stop talking to your family; you'll be happier." Because that, like, honestly, that made me like super depressed. It was like, like I'm finally starting to speak about what happened there, and right, you, know, right. you would think that people that would support you the most is your own family. Um, oh, but they wanted nothing, nothing to do with it. Um, so yeah, but uh, Robert, I, I'm I'm really sorry to hear that, and. Um, you know, I, I think very, very highly of you and, and all the things that you, you've been doing. And, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, for whatever it's worth, you know, in, in any any strange way that we can be family, can, consider consider uh, myself a phone call away if there's ever anything I can do uh, to, to help you. I mean, you're, you're, you're a really great person that is doing some amazing work. And, you know, the, the things that you're doing... Um, you know, if you're successful in, in what you're doing, and I, I am confident that you will be, um, you know, this is not just something that you're doing for you. It's something you're, and I've heard you, I've heard you talk about your concern for the kids that are in there now. Um, you know, there's there's a lot 
to be proud of you for. And uh, I'm sorry that hasn't been your experience, but um, just know you've got people here and I'm glad you've connected with people like Chelsea and, and other survivors, but I'm sorry to hear that. It's, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think a, a tremendous loss for your family to, to make that decision. Um, Chelsea, do you have anything that you would like to kind of share about, you know, your situation with that? Um, I mean, I can say that I've definitely gone through phases like that with my dad. Um, you know, when I first, when I first started talking about Tranquility Bay, it was very much the same thing from everyone in my family. They're like, okay, like we heard you, please take down this website, please (laughs) stop with the journals and like all of this, like we don't, yeah. Um, and that, I don't know, I guess for a while I did kind of back off of activism for a bit and then jumped back into it. It's It's been up and down. Um, but I can say, I think over the past maybe four years-ish, um, my dad has started actually like listening to things, reading articles, listening to podcasts, watching documentaries. And that's helped kind of soften his mind to the idea that that something did happen, right? I think what's really hard, and now that I'm a parent, I have a little bit more empathy for this. It's really hard to admit when you failed your kid, especially in such a profound way. Um, and especially when you did it with love. Um, you know, I know it, it's hard, it's hard to admit, but like, I know that my dad did what he thought was best, right? I'm angry. I wish he had chosen differently. I have many feelings about it and I could say I would do a different thing, but I don't know if I would. If if a licensed psychologist told me this is what my daughter needed after this horrific trauma, I might very well think, okay, this person knows what they're doing. Yeah. Right, right. Well, and, and that's part of the reason that we're doing what we're doing and having conversations like this, because you and I have both talked about um, before, you know, kind of when it comes to kids, the idea that kids do well if they can. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and, and you know, that kind of echoing the, the work of Dr. Ross Green. And I think that to some extent that that parents do well if they can and others do well if they can. And, you know, there, there are times that I think that, you know, well-intentioned parents are being led to believe by the professionals that this is the best option. Uh, and, you know, I guess, um, you know, um, what I would implore people to do is really do your research and, you know, don't look at the um, promise uh, that anyone may make to you. I mean, first of all, anyone that's promising you to fix a child, uh, that's the wrong goal, right? It shouldn't be about fixing people. We're human beings. It should be about helping and supporting people. Uh, but, but you know, also, I think the importance of um, hearing voices of people that have been through programs or been involved with different approaches is critical. You can't judge the outcome uh, without talking to people that have experienced things, right? So the voice of lived experience is probably the biggest voice that should be listened to when people make these decisions. But I'm sure it's really difficult uh, when 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 and if parents do make that um kind of cross over that line from realizing, oh my, I sent my child to this place that was harmful. Uh, I'm sure that's a hard thing to accept, but uh, I hope that you continue to see progress in your journey. Uh, And of course, Robert, I hope that, you know, with your family, that there may be hope. I mean, uh, hope is always worth keeping, but, you know, at the same time, knowing that there are people that that love and support you, um, you know, is sometimes what you have in in the moment. But, uh, you know, I appreciate you sharing that and that perspective, because certainly, you know, again, uh, people are sometimes in this position, um, thinking that they're doing something 
good and and realizing you know the the damage that is later caused in that vein you know chelsea you mentioned something earlier that resonated with me a lot and that was talking about behaviorism and, and behaviorism is this whole idea that uh we are going to control your behavior by offering you either punishments or rewards right it's all about how do we manipulate you into doing what we want you to do? Um, talk to me a little bit about your experience kind of with behaviorism and why you have concerns about the approach. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think especially like experiencing it when what I really needed was was true treatment for trauma. Um, you know, behaviorism is not mental health treatment. It's not person centered. It's really not even about you. It is about how you present to the people around you, how to make yourself more palatable for others. So it's not, are you sad? What can we do about the sadness that you're feeling? It's how can we get you to hide that sadness so that it doesn't make other people feel uncomfortable? Um, and I think that, you know, that's not helpful to the person who's who's mm -hmm. being treated, right? Um, you know, something I think about with the troubled teen industry is that none of us were actually the clients, our parents were the clients, and we right. were the products, right? So these programs existed to mold us into what our parents ultimately wanted us to be, or the system or somebody, right? What we were supposed to be. Um, and I think that's what behaviorism really is. It's kind of this surface view of looking at how people are doing based on what we can see. Um, and what you can see about a person doesn't really tell you that much. You know, somebody throwing a traditional tantrum could be throwing that for a hundred different reasons. Um, but under a behaviorist approach, you're going to treat them the same no matter what and expect, you know, compliance. Right. right. So. Uh, so what I'd like to do is I have um, about one or two more questions for you, but I, but I want to shift over and see if there's any questions or comments uh, from the viewers. There's been a lot of dialogue going on, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll get to some of that dialogue. And, and those of you that are watching live, uh, if you have questions, put them in the chat. We'll try to get to a few of those as well. Um, but kind of getting to a couple of, of wrap-up questions for our discussion. You know, Robert, uh, in terms of your efforts to, um, you know, really, uh, you know, um, be blunt, uh, hope to shut down that facility, which is and has abused children. Um, you know, what what are you what are you planning to do next? How can people that want to help get involved? Um, you know, what what can people do to support the work that you're trying to do here? Yeah, so I think once Agape gets shut down, it, I think the writing's on the wall. It's inevitable. It's a matter of time. Um, and I think once that happens, I'll just continue to work on schools in Missouri for now. I think I've made a lot of different um, like friends in the media as well as lawmakers uh, in that state already. And I think, you know, we have Chelsea and there's plenty of other people just like us who are trying to help. Um, you know, if anyone wants to help who's interested or who's not, feel free to message me on Facebook, uh, Twitter. Or Chelsea, I'm sure. Um, there's, like I said, many different organizations that you can follow and seek help from. Uh, that will give you some good insight on a place to send your child if that's something that you need to do. But a place that you know he'll leave, where your child will leave, actually helped and not traumatized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really it, honestly, guy. 
Okay. And, and, and what do you see down the road for you? I mean, in uh, terms of, you know, I know that you work in the healthcare um, profession now. Uh, do you have any other, any other dreams or aspirations in terms of like where you'd like to be um, kind of in the future? Yeah. So I actually want to just work in that emergency room as a nurse uh, permanently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that that's what I see for myself. You know, I, over the last year, I've been able to actually help some of our patients in the hospital who have been sexually or physically abused, you know, mm-hmm. probably help them more than what a doctor or the social worker or somebody else there um, could help them because of, I'm just able to relate what happened to me with what happened to them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, honestly, I, I enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's great that you're doing that uh, work and, uh, you know, what what a fantastic way to, uh, you know, be able to help other people and be compassionate. Uh, you know, I was thinking about what you said earlier about, you know, kind of the, the psychiatric facility at the hospital that you have there. And I thought, well, maybe Robert and I could talk about that someday. Maybe we can get them to work to reduce their restraint seclusion usage there, because that's a real goal, too, is, is finding in within hospitals, helping them make uh, because it, it's very doable. It's very doable if you're using restraint seclusion and even a medical facility with acute psychiatric patients. Absolutely. You can continue to reduce those things. So maybe there'll be some future opportunity to collaborate towards that kind of change, uh, maybe kind of bringing together some of the, the passions that you have. Um, Chelsea, how about you? You know, thinking about, I mean, you've been involved, um, again, with some some pretty high profile organizations. Uh, you work with this podcast, uh, Trapped in Treatment with uh, Paris Hilton, and uh, have done some really amazing things trying to raise awareness. Now, I say that and I recognize that, um, or, you know, from, from my experience, not necessarily in the troubled teen industry, but working with people that have survived uh, trauma, uh-huh. uh, it can be really tough sometimes, too. Um, so even sometimes as survivors, like supporting each other and, and all of that can be tough, but what are kind of your hopes going forward in terms of the troubled teen industry? And then tell me too, for Chelsea, like, you know, I know you and I, every once in a while have had conversations, like you've had some ideas that you've been cooking uh-huh. about things. So anything you share, I'd love to hear that. But so for, in terms of the troubled teen industry as a whole, and then what's coming next for you? Um, so for the troubled teen industry as a whole, I'm definitely going to keep working towards spreading awareness. So doing research, um, I think trapped in treatment is a really great outlet for learning about the troubled teen industry, mildly biased. Um, but yeah, uh, writing, I'm into that, uh, in terms of bigger ideas, I have lots of them. Um, they're all still pretty much half baked, but I am personally, (laughs) really loving to see this kind of focus on lived experience and on elevating survivor voices, not just of the troubled teen industry, but in general. Um, And I really have no idea how I would ever achieve this, but I would love to see some sort of resources or representation for folks as they're kind of navigating out in the world of sharing their story um, to try to avoid some of the pitfalls that I know I went through and others have gone through with maybe feeling exploited or like, you know, you have no idea what you're doing, you're dealing with news outlets, you're dealing with media, you're dealing with people asking you about your weirdest, most intimate traumatic moments. And how do you do that and come out okay? (laughs) I guess. So yeah, Um, there's a Chelsea idea of the day. (laughs) Yeah. And what's your shirt say, by the way? Uh, Impossible. So this is just 
promoting yeah. the impossible so, burger. Yeah. Okay. But, but I look at that and, and I'm thinking nothing is impossible for Chelsea. Um, that is so also I, true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I was thinking about your idea and like, well, I don't know how we do it. Uh, I have no doubt that if you set out to do it, you, you'll, you'll do it. Um, you know, you both are already helping a lot of people, you know, getting out. I mean, you know, I know it's hard. I mean, I know it's hard to come out and share your story. Uh, to, like you said, I mean, to share some of the worst things that have happened to you and the trauma that you've been through. But it, I, I'm a firm believer that our stories really make a huge difference. You know, sharing with people, showing other people that we had the courage to share. It makes such a big difference. Um, so with that, I'm going to share a couple of the comments here and I'm probably just going to work through here. Uh, and just show a few. Uh, we've got some nice uh, props here for uh, Robert and Chelsea. Uh, people sharing where they're from here. Somebody from International Falls, Minnesota. Uh, let's see, Lee, uh, five, 1989 to 91, the Cascade School. Uh, let's see what else we have here. i uh, got a couple shout outs here. Um, somebody in Dallas uh, joining us. Uh, somebody asking the obvious question, how are these places still open? Um, and unfortunately, and, and, you know, one thing we didn't touch on with you, Robert, is that, uh, sometimes the religious uh, part of this, uh, makes it even more challenging, right? If a school has some, uh, religious affiliation, uh, how does that affect, uh, a place like uh, Agape? Are they under different, uh, governing rules than other organizations might be? Oops, wait, we, lose, we lose you, Robert? My sound stopped working. I don't know. Uh, okay. Okay. You guys can hear me or not. We can hear you, but you can't hear us. I um, can't Chelsea, hear anything you guys are saying. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see if Robert comes back on. Um, Chelsea, do you know anything about that? I mean, are, are schools I that do, have a yeah. religious exemption? What's, what does that mean for them? Um, so in a lot of states, uh, Missouri included, if you you are affiliated. Um, sometimes you don't even have to tell the state that you exist. Um, you're completely exempt from all of the other regulatory laws and rules um, and can be self-governing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so you, yeah. you can get away with things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little more easily. Mm -hmm. sometimes. All right. A couple of the comments here. Uh, Sandy says, yes, it's all about the trauma. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, somebody mentioning that their son came home with more trauma than when he left. Um, a lot of uh, respect here uh, for both of you. Um, Trina mentioned, I thought the trauma-informed approach was widely accepted. At least that's what uh, what has been sold. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, what you experienced, Chelsea, wasn't a trauma-informed approach. Um, are there... And, and this is kind of a tough question. I'm not asking you to mention anybody in particular, but are there facilities now that are moving in the right direction that are beginning to understand trauma-informed approaches? I know from talking to you uh, that you would say, well, the best place for a kid would be home with their family and support. Mm -hmm. um, but are there some facilities that are moving in a better direction at this point? I think that there are facilities that have moved away from some of the more aggressively coercive or like really kind of out there therapies, um, like the the large group awareness, the confrontation stuff, some of that is being phased out. Um, but I don't know that we really have truly trauma-aware facilities. Um, I think most places are still using level systems. Most facilities that are open today still restrict communication between kids and their parents and kids and their, their support systems back home. Um, so I think until those kinds of things are eliminated. We can't really call it 
trauma-centered. Right, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Um, and it seems that we lost Robert. Hopefully he'll come back on, uh, but we'll, we'll keep going here in the, the short term. Uh, lots of nice comments about, you know, sharing your stories. Uh, again, recognizing this can be really difficult. Um, let's see. And, and somebody, Sandy, actually mentioned Paris Hilton. Uh, said, I wonder if you made contact with Drew Barrymore or Paris Hilton. Of course, uh, not only have you made contact, but you've worked with organizations that have worked with and are doing the podcast uh, with Paris okay. Hilton's. Um, okay. Um, so, and, and as you mentioned, I mean, that certainly has brought a lot of attention, but uh, there were a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of work for many years on this. Yes. And, and, and certainly great to see you know, more, more attention on this and, and certainly appreciate, uh, I think the value that somebody with a high profile can bring, but uh, wow. I mean, the, the work that you and others have been doing for, for, you know, decades now in, in some cases um, has really built, I think the foundation of where things are. Um, so hopefully, um, you know, we're going to see some good change coming with more awareness. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, uh, let's see people talking about uh, individual situations here. Um, again, you know, uh, much respect for the work you're doing to give a voice uh, to the abuses occurring within these schools and programs and doing what you can to stop the abuses for future generations. Uh, that obviously is is huge. Um, you know, it's, it's not just a matter of this being, um, you know, it's not just a matter of I went through this and I want to shut them down to be vengeful, but it's a matter of, you know, how do we stop this from happening to others? Um, you know, I mean, the the work that I started with the Alliance, I mean, you know, my son now is in a great place in a great school doing really well. Um, but the the work we continue to do because there's a lot of kids out there without a voice. And I'm sure, you know, at night when you think about it and realizing there's kids still in these facilities across the, you know, across the nation, it's really tough. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the so much appreciate, you know, what you and Robert and, and so many others are doing to, um, you know, to bring about change. Absolutely. And you as well. I mean, your organization does some amazing work. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we're getting at about the end of the, our time here. Um, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Is there anything else that you would like to uh, share with the, the audience that's watching today or, or might be watching later in terms of uh, kind of your, you know, your hopes and, and uh, uh, goals with all of this or, or things that other people can do uh, to support this work? I think the most important thing is just kind of being aware of what is happening in your state and your community. Um, you know, these facilities exist all over the United States. There is probably a lockdown facility somewhere within driving distance to where you live that is housing kids right now. Um, learn about it. See what people have to say about about the places that are in your state and in your town, um, because you're the one who has the most say in what is going on there. Um, a lot of times when we do our investigations into programs, you know, it's neighbors, it's people who live around there who have kind of the loudest voice and a lot of sway in what happens. Um, and that could be you. So you could help that way, too. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you know, I think that the message that, that we can make a difference, I mean, sometimes we feel so small and, and like we can't do anything to affect change. Uh, but, you know, people like like you and Robert, I mean, Robert became a, a one man uh, Evolution mm -hmm. uh, with the work that he started with Agape. And of course, you know, uh, you know, I realize that, you know, he's working with other people and a lot of people are supporting what he's doing as well. But, um, you know, people, individuals can make a difference. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, in your neighbor, you know, kind of in your area, there probably is one uh, just the 
add one question on here. We have a pretty international audience. So in fact, I see my friend Linda uh, just joined from New Zealand. Uh, Linda's okay. fairly regular here. It's, oh gosh, I don't even know what time it is in New Zealand. We usually do our show around 3.30. I know it's around 7 a.m. the next day. So she's probably in the well into the afternoon now, but we do have people from across the, the, the world, you know, mm-hmm. New Zealand, Australia, the United Kingdom, you know, we, we find people from all over join us. Is this also, you know, I, I know with restraint seclusion, it's a fairly international issue. Are there these kinds of facilities in, in other countries as well? And are there international efforts around this? There are, yes. Um, and you mentioned New Zealand. I know they're doing an inquiry into abuse and care right now. I think Lake Alice is there. Um, that's an institution that has just a horrific history. Um You know, we are uniquely positioned in America as the only country that has yet to ratify the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. So what we're seeing in other nations is the same thing has occurred and is probably still occurring, but they're at least investigating it. And so most most nations are launching these massive investigations into typically they're a few decades off. You know, it's what happened a little while ago, but it it's opening the door Um, and, you know. Yeah. So basically, yes, this happens all over the place. We just don't have we don't even have that basic framework in place here to even start an investigation like that or to mm-hmm. to take mm-hmm. those basic actions. Gotcha. And Linda did weigh in and say it's 1220 on Tuesday, oh, uh, 12, okay. 1220 in the afternoon on Tuesday. So, uh, you know, there we go. We, we've we've got that um, world worldwide reach here. Cheers uh, listen, to the future. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, absolutely. Um, so, you know, unfortunately we lost Robert, um, but, you know, really appreciate him being on and sharing his experience. Uh, I know you and I both have a tremendous amount of uh, respect for him and what he's doing. Uh, Chelsea, you're an amazing human being. Uh, appreciate all that you're doing. Uh, sorry for the experiences that, that you went through. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's an honor always to be able to uh, collaborate with you. So thank you so much for coming on tonight. I know this was something we just kind of got the idea real quickly, like, Hey, we should do a, we should do a live event and Hey, how about Monday? Um, but you know, my hope is that, you know, somebody will watch this and somebody that might, you know, um, know somebody in a facility, uh, somebody that might be thinking about, you know, putting someone in uh, such a facility, uh, maybe it'll make a difference and, uh, keep doing the work you're doing and, uh, we'll look for future opportunities to work together. Thank you. Happy to work with you anytime. And thanks to everyone who came and watched. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.